Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Listener behind. This episode of the House of Mystery is brought to you by Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. LegacyFoodStorage.com Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back to the House of Mystery. And of course, this is Al Warren joining me today for our first day back in two weeks is Mr. John Copenhaver. How are you doing, John? Uh, splendid, Al. Just splendid. Well, you should be Mr. Award winner. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, he's spoiled. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that. Oh, that thing. <laughs> oh, that thing. Oh, yeah. I remember now. <laughs> yeah, wow. that felt pretty good, I have to admit, yes. But, uh, you know, life marches on and I had a good weekend, so... That's yeah, really July 4th, did you go out drinking, eating hot dogs? or I'm No, sure I buried myself inside and just, like, watch movies. <laughs> and, and did you have a wiener? I, I did not have a wiener. <laughs> I had a whole fish, but <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I didn't. I thought you'd be more into chicken, but <laughs> anyway. And of course, you saw me on the great cover of Books and Buzz magazine. I did. You're looking good. It's a very nice cover. Yeah, I'm surprised that people like it. I was really worried when I saw it. I thought, my God, when did you get so old? <laughs> You know, I don't know what how that happens, but um just seemed like yesterday and Madonna was new and I was young. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Now, speaking of young, we've got a really young um he's he's a first time writer. No, he's uh, he's written a few but he's still really young. Mr. Greg Heron is here. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for asking me to be here. 
Well, it's a pleasure. So, so who are you? And, and this is in a, in a loving way. So let's, let's talk about Greg and, and how Greg got into writing and being such a good writer and being well known for your writing. Uh, well, I'm pretty much, um, I used to joke that I became a writer because I'm completely unemployable, <laughs> but I always, it was something I always wanted to do. I learned how to read when I was really, really young. I was three when I learned how to read and then I was a voracious reader and I, it's just what I always wanted to do. I loved books and that's why I wanted to create books. I wanted I enjoyed reading stories. I wanted to tell stories for other people to enjoy. And it took me a long time to actually get started. Um, I always wrote. I started, I, I think I wrote my first story when I was seven or eight years old. And I always, I've always written my entire life, but I never really started publishing anything until I was 40. My first, my first short stories came out when I was 39. And my first novel came out when I was, I think I was still 40 when it came out. I hadn't turned 41 yet, but that was also a very long time ago. So, geez, I thought you were still 30. (laughs) Second time around with that one. (laughs) But when you say that, it's, it's interesting. You say create books. So what do you think of a book that you put out or what do you think of books? You say you you love to read them. So what, how does that description fit? Like create? Um, well, I love books because when I was a kid, they were my escape from bitter, harsh reality. Uh, I could always get lost in a book. I was never bored. And I still, I always carry a book with me wherever I go. Whenever I have to wait somewhere, I always have a book with me. I'd rather do that than scroll through my phone. And I always wanted to, it was just some, I, I just love books. I don't, I, I can't really think of how to quantify or say that any further. Um, I, I love to read. I really enjoy stories. I get caught up in them. I lose, I lose where I am. I, it's very difficult for me. It was very, it's very, very difficult for me because now my reading time is very limited because I have so much else that I have to do. And it's very difficult for me because it's hard for me to put something down once I start reading it and I start getting into the story and I, I just don't want to stop reading it. And then I have to. And then I, so I, I'll end up not reading during the time I set aside for reading because especially if I'm reading a book that I really enjoy like I just finished John's award-winning book this last weekend but (laughs) it was really difficult because I knew it took me longer than it ordinarily would to read it because I could I only had limited time to read and so then I would have, okay, well, I have an hour to kill I could I could read some more of John's book and it's like well I don't want to do that because then I'll keep reading and I won't want to stop reading and then I'll blow off whatever it is that I wanted that I need to do in an hour. And then I'll just end up sitting in my chair and reading the book all day. That's, that is actually my ideal world where I don't ever have to leave my house and people just bring things to me and books and I can just read and write all day long and not have to go out into the world. That would be like my (laughs) dream. Absolute dream. I, 
it was funny because when, <laughs> when, the, when the world shut down with the start of the pandemic and everyone was complaining about it, about being trapped at home, I was like, this is my dream come true. I can't leave the house. This is amazing. Where has this been? <laughs> COVID, where have you been all my Where life? have you been? Yeah. <laughs> Then what do you mean I have to go back to the office? <laughs> no, I don't want to go back to the office. But <laughs> well, it, that's but that you say that, but um, don't don't you feel well? This is this isn't for everyone, but don't you feel like the outside world is kind of where you get your experiences and what you write? Uh, yeah, that's probably true. Also, it's also where I find my murder victims. So, so yeah, people you I, don't like. <laughs> oh, they always. I, I've I pretty much have killed off everyone I've ever disliked in a story or a book at some point in my life. Now that's a joke. That's a joke. Lawyers, lawyers. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but yeah, it, I mean, I, I I don't mean that. I I guess I shouldn't say that. I never want to leave the house. I I don't mind going to the grocery store and I don't mind running errands. I would just rather not have to have a job a 40 hour a week job that I had to go to. So being able to work from home was very lovely, particularly since I'd been having my employers have been telling me for 16 years that we would never be able to work from home, that our jobs just couldn't be done from home. And Oh, guess what? But you did it. <laughs> they can be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why not? Why not? So, but yeah, I mean, when I, before I took this job, I used there was a I had a very lovely period of time where I actually my primary source of income was from publishing, and I didn't have to have a job. And so, but I still left the house. I would go to the gym. I would go to the grocery store. I would run errands. I'd go out to eat. I'd meet friends for drinks and things. And that was, you know, that's like that's really my ideal life not being necessarily trapped in the house. So sometimes being trapped in the house is very, very appealing. <laughs> very well, appealing. Well, we won't ask you what kind of rooms you have in your home, but uh, <laughs> you know, that'll be for another show. But well, maybe. Every, well, you know, everything can be delivered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Um, but I always ask this question because, okay, so you've been writing since you were young and writing stories, but now you didn't publish till 39, 40 type area. What was it that happened or what is it that gave you that courage to go, yeah, I'm going to publish it? Well, I had tried publishing stuff before. I was incredibly very naive. I didn't understand how the business worked and it, and it's a, it was a completely bit different business when I first when I was in my 20s, it was a completely different business than it was when I was in my 30s than it is now. It, it's amazing how different everything is. But I would try to get, I would send stories in. Back in the olden days, we used to have to mail things. <laughs> and, you used to have to, and you had to type things. And, you know, it was more of, it, it was Computers made that a lot easier, made submissions a lot, writing and submitting things and printing things out and sending off copies of things much, much easier than it ever was with a typewriter. 
and, and, and postage and all of that stuff. And so it was really funny because I was very, very naive and I didn't know how to go. I didn't know anybody who was a published writer. I'd never met a writer. I didn't know anybody who did it. And so basically I was just going off of what creative writing teachers would tell you. It would tell me in class or would tell the class on how you go about getting published. And looking back now, I laugh because it's like, well, they weren't publishing. So why would they, how would they know? <laughs> and how, why were you, list, I guess, authority figure? It was that yeah. authority figure thing. And so I would just like get the writer's market and I would just go through and, and find places to send short stories to because I was also, when I went to college and I went to through writing program, writing classes and things, the general consensus, and I don't know if this is the case anywhere else, I just seem to have had some really bad instructors and went to really bad universities. But the, it, the mentality was that to become a writer, to write, become a novelist, you had to publish short stories first. Short stories were your entree into the world of publishing. So you would get stories published in magazines here and there. And then you, while you worked on your novel, you were building up this backlist of places you've published. And then you, that would hopefully attract that. You could take that in your manuscript to an agent who could then take it to a publisher and get you a book deal and all so on and so forth. And so that's what I was doing. I was just writing short stories and I was terrible at writing short stories. Short stories are still incredibly hard for me to write. And why do you think it's hard for you to write a short story? Because it, it, it's hard for me to do anything that's not long. It's terrible. <laughs> what? That's I, 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 I caught myself before I said that. Yeah, so you, you have I heard, to do it I, I heard how that was sounding. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I never, I never really understood. When, when I would take writing classes, I, I was very, very young and very, very stupid when I went to college. And I understand that completely now i did not understand it at the time but i didn't understand how how story short stories worked because they would have they would teach you these this is how a short story is structured beginning middle end this is how a story works and so on and so forth and then they would have you read stories that would illustrate what they were teaching you about but the stories didn't have beginnings middles or ends yeah. i mean it's like okay i'm teaching you story structure now read barry hannah what that didn't make and so i could never i never really could wrap my mind around it it's really kind of funny i would whenever i would write a good short story it was always by mistake because i had no idea what i was doing and i would send off these stories to i was trying i tried to be a horror writer in the 80s that was where i actually started writing horror novels horror short stories Horror, not horror. Well, I was and say, uh, <laughs> horror, wow. horror. And it was really funny because I would send them to, and now I think back at the, the magazines that I was sending them to, and one of them, there's only one of them that's still around, and I would get handwritten notes on my stories when they would come back to me. They would be rejected, and the editors would have us really would give me notes, written notes on how to make the story better, and to submit it, here's some notes, submit it somewhere else and all this stuff. And I always, me and my naivete, I just thought, oh, well, they're just being nice. 
editors are not nice. No, (laughs) editors are not nice. No one is ever going to. And it wasn't until I became an editor that I realized, oh, yeah, no one's going to tell you to keep sending them stuff if they think your stuff is garbage. (laughs) Why, Why would they do that to themselves? They're trying to keep they're trying to keep as much stuff off their desk as they possibly can. They're not encouraged going to encourage somebody who's not any good to keep trying. And so it's, it's actually kind of funny because I did reach a point where I was just like, okay, I'm going to stop this for a while. This is just not working and it's, it's depressing and I'm feeling bad about my life choices. And so I'm going to stop doing this. And it wasn't until, like I said, it wasn't until many years later that I realized it. no one does. Editors generally don't do that unless they see something. It's what they're seeing, you know, that, oh, there's potential here. This guy could be actually good. We could eventually publish this guy. He just needs some more work and polish, but I didn't know that at the time. Ironically, I started writing a not, I always thought in terms of novels rather than short stories, because for whatever reason in my head, that just made sense. I could understand how to structure a novel, but I couldn't understand the structure of a short story. But I can be very obtuse. <laughs> I can, I'm one of those people who won't understand something and won't understand it. And you can explain it every conceivable possible way and it will not make sense to me. And then one day it'll just turn on and I totally get it. I was a D student in algebra one. and I got D's in ge- geometry because I did, it didn't make sense to me. And then my junior year in high school, it clicked in my head and I became an A student in algebra, trig and calculus. From being a D student, I went to an A student because once one day my brain figured it out. Oh, this is, this is how it works. That's what this does. That's how you do this. That's how this works. And so it was the same thing. So I was writing this. I wrote a novel. I wrote a crime novel set in New Orleans. And I had a really good mentor. And I was also the book reviewer for the local queer newspaper. And I only reviewed the books that they we got review copies for. I mean, it was a queer newspaper, a small queer newspaper in New Orleans. We weren't getting books from Simon and Schuster and Doubleday and all the major presses. We were getting them from the small queer presses, which was, you know, what was great. I was glad to be able to work with those writers and promote their work more so. But Allison Books was the major pub, was the biggest publisher in queer publishing at that time. And they would send us every single thing that they published. So I would review them. And then I would send them reviews, copies of the print review, like you were supposed to do, so that they would keep sending you review copies. And so their publicist had come to New Orleans for the American Library Association, and he wanted to take me out for dinner to thank me for all the book reviews. And I'm like, well, you're the only people that send me books, but okay, I'll take a free meal. And, <laughs> and while we were talking at dinner about publishing and me wanting to be a writer and so on and so forth. And I mentioned to him, you know, I have this mystery novel that I'm working on with a private, a private eye set in New Orleans. Would that be something y'all would ever be interested in? And he said, yes, but try everywhere else first because use us as your last resort. Which I thought was really odd, but it made sense later. And he told me that the best thing for me to do with if I wanted to publish with them or to get an offer from them was to start submitting short stories to the anthologies that they were publishing, because the more you stories you submit there, they get so many submissions and that the editors 
log them in and so on and so forth. But they don't, if you, the more you submit, the more your name becomes familiar to them. So that by the time my manuscript, my novel manuscript came in, they would say, oh, I know that name. And they would, and it might have more of a chance, better chance of getting read all the way through than if it just came in cold. So I thought, oh, that's an interesting idea. I'm a shitty short story writer, but I'll give it a try. So I went home and I went to their website and I looked at their calls for submissions and all of their submission calls were for erotica. I didn't want to write erotica. I didn't, I'd never written a sex scene in my life. I had no idea how, it's like, I'm a terrible short story writer and now you want me to write porn. <laughs> okay. But then I, I thought about it. There was an, there was an anthology call that I thought, oh, I, probably could think of something for this and so I spent that weekend writing the story and it was very embarrassing I was embarrassing myself and I can't believe I'm doing this I can't believe I'm writing about this I can't believe I'm writing about this and I'm saying this and doing this more and also back in those days I, John and you're too young to remember but in the old in the olden days <laughs> You used yore. <laughs> the, the days of yore when the, when when dragons flew, but the the mentality always was, and I had had writers tell me this as well: is you never submit a story to just one market. If you're going to send a story out, you might as well send out send it to two places instead of just one. And so, I submitted the story to the anthology, and I submitted the story to a porn magazine. Um, men, I think was the name of the magazine. Pretty, pretty basic right there in the title, men. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I can't leave home without it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and then I sent, a, I sent them off and I didn't really think about it anymore. I just forgot about it because I was doing, working on my book, I was doing other things. And then one day I got an email from the editor of the anthology wanting to buy my story. I was like, wow, of course, the first story you sell is porn. That's <laughs> about par for the course for you. But it was exciting because it was like $75. And it's like, I'm going to get my name in the book. I'm going to be published. Oh, this was very, very, very exciting. And so I agreed to sell it to them. And the next day was a Friday. I distinctly remember this. Friday afternoon, I came home and the editor from Men Magazine wanted to buy my story for $500. Oh, wow. And I was like, I just sold it to Allison, an anthology at Allison for $75, but you want it for $500, but I can't really because I want to maybe publish my book with them. So I don't want to screw them over. So I just wrote the editor at Men Magazine back, and I just said, oh, I'm so sorry. I just sold that story two days ago, but I have another one similar that I could send you instead if I could have the, do you, I, if I, could I take the weekend and polish it? And he wrote, like, five minutes later, he responds, yes, absolutely. I'll look forward to reading it on Monday. And I'm like, okay, now I have to write another porn story. Because, <laughs> of course, there was no other porn story. And he bought and Monday I sent it to him. He emailed me back that afternoon and he bought it. I was like, wow, two sales in one week. I'm, I'm cooking with gas here. <laughs> and, and then it, as, and <laughs> it was weird and I'd never really wanted, had ever thought about writing erotica or ever doing it, but it kind of became a side hustle for me for quite some time. <laughs> 
And I would get requested. People would write to me and editors would write me and ask me to write erotic stories for them. It's like, this is really, my career's not really going the way I want it to, but this is extra cash is really nice. And ironically, it turned out, I'll, I'll make the story short. I'm cutting a bunch of but a bunch out here. But one day I got a rejection for my novel manuscript from an editor, from an agent that was really nasty. And when I got home from the picking up my mail and had read, read it in the car, I was just shaking with rage. It was so nasty and condescending. I was shaking with rage when I got home. And I signed into my email and there was an email about my short story in the anthology. And I never read further down other than it was past his signature line. His, you know, he would just say, thanks, Scott. And I never read further down from that. The person I was dealing with was the executive editor of Allison Publishing. He was the person who was using a house name to edit this anthology. And that's who I'd been dealing with all this time, who was encouraging me to send him more work. And we want to publish you more. And this and that. And the other, and I just wrote him back, said, hey, by, I have a, I just finished a manuscript of a, about a gay private eye murder mystery set in New Orleans with a gay private eye. Would that be something you'd be interested in reading? And he said, please send it to me. So I took the copy the agent had sent me back put it into another envelope, mailed it to them on Monday, the following week. And six weeks later, they bought it. And that's how Greg became a, a published novelist. <laughs> it's so interesting. What, so you talked a lot about sort of your road to publishing, but why your initial sort of passion was for mystery fiction. And how did you get into mystery fiction and why have you sort of remained there? I know you sort of, you know, ventured into more Gothic as well, which I, I'm curious about. Um, uh, hear why, why that might be the case as well. Well, when I was a little boy, I was a latchkey kid in the 60s when nobody was latchkey kids. Mm-hmm. My mom and dad were the only, I was, my sister and I had the only parents where both parents worked. Everyone else's mom was a stay-at-home mom, so everyone felt sorry for us because, you know, nobody was waiting home for us when we got home from school and we were neglected and so on and all that. And of course, by the time I was in high school, my dad had done well enough that my mom didn't have to work again. And everybody else's mom had to go back to work. Like, well, my mom's a housewife now. I used to have to get babysat a lot. And so there was this older lady down the street who would babysit my, would watch my sister and I when when my parents needed it there too. And my grandmother also lived in the region, the area, and she would take us all the time. And both of these older women loved classic Hollywood movies, especially gangster movies and horror movies and murder mysteries and things like that. So when I was a kid, I was watching, now I think about it, it's really insane that these older women were letting a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, my sister, watch Mildred Pierce and Double Indemnity, (laughs) the Maltese Falcon. And I developed this deep appreciation or horror, gothic fiction, and, and and mysteries. And so that carried over into my reading. I started reading, I think the first, I used to get, the, I used to always order anything from the Scholastic Book Club that had secret, mystery, clue, or ghost in the title. <laughs> and I read a lot of those. And then I, then I discovered Trixie Belden and Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys and the Three Investigators and Encyclopedia Brown. And all. I read 
I still have all of my copies of those books that I read when I was a kid. And my grandmother was also a huge fan of Mary Stewart. So when I was like eight years old, spending the summer visiting with my grandmother, I read The Ivy Tree. Because I would read anything that was available. <laughs> and so I had no idea what it was. It was just my grandmother's book and it was sitting on the table. So I picked it up and I started reading. It's like, this is amazing. And then I moved on to more adult stuff. I read The Godfather and Gone with the Wind and all of that when I was like 10. Way too young. <laughs> way too young to read that stuff. But then I moved on to Mary Stewart and Phyllis Whitney. I read all of her books for children. For juvenile mysteries and then I discovered that she wrote mysteries for adults as well so I started reading her adult mysteries I was a huge fan of Phyllis Whitney I actually the only writer I've ever written a fan letter to before the internet was Phyllis Whitney and she actually wrote me back the letter got lost sometime but it was, it was one of my prized possessions she actually wrote me back when I was like 11 11 or 12 which I thought was really, really cool. And I've always thought that was a very gracious thing for a New York Times bestselling author who published two books a year to typewrite a letter to a 12-year-old fan, 11 or 12-year-old fan. It was pretty amazing. And so I've always had that kind of... I remember one of the mo my most vivid memories of watching a movie with my grandmother when I was a kid it was the most terrifying thing and to this day it still is the most terrifying movie to me is The Haunting the original Haunting oh, yeah, that's great and scary <laughs> yeah it's terrifying it's absolutely it's terrifying. terrifying and I didn't know that there was a book and so when I discovered that there was a book when I was later in my teens it's like Shirley Jackson became one of my favorite writers because The Haunting of Hill House is just extraordinary novel and I always kind of wanted to write those kinds of books too and so I got away from ironically I got away from reading mysteries in the late 70s because realistically all of the strong women crime writers were pretty much fading away from the past the Margaret Millars and Dorothy Hughes they were all getting Charlotte Armstrong had died so the only things that were really getting published that were mysteries for women were gothic romances by Victoria Holt, Phyllis Whitney, that type thing, or male, straight white male, macho, toxic masculinity books. And you can only read so many of those before you, your eyes bug out. It's like, I have no interest in reading this. If this is all that crime fiction is from now on, I'll find something else. And that's when I kind of evolved into reading a lot of horror because I love Stephen King, and so I started write, reading other horror writers, and that was why I wanted to be a horror writer first. But it really all goes back to the gothic stuff. I don't think I could write horror. I can write gothic, but I can't write horror. I can't write jump scare stuff or grotesque. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, the really vivid, really descriptive. Psychological, like, horror, psychological. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. I like, I like it to have a bit of the supernatural touch to it but not i can't for me to write it i can't because i don't understand how any of that stuff works like tell it psychokinesis and all of that i can't do that but i can write a ghost story <laughs> i can write a ghost story and circling back porn is what taught me how to write short stories because when you're writing a porn story it literally is beginning middle end they meet they have sex it's over <laughs> and I mean, suddenly, they didn't teach you that in uh, your college career writing classes. They they <laughs> did not. Couples. They did not, and it's the best definition of a short of how to write a short story, beginning, middle, end. You can possibly think of. It's a sex scene. They meet. They fall in love. They have sex. They they meet. They're attracted. They have sex. It's over. They say goodbye. That, there's your story structure, and that's. Basically, the story structure I always use now when I write a short story. My short story ideas don't always work out. That's why I have so many that are in progress. Because what I can't figure out how to get to where I may not be able to figure out how to get through the middle to the end that I want. That's why I have so many in progress at a time. I have like ridiculous. Like I'll get in. Oh, that's a great title for a story. Oh, that's a great opening for a story. And then I write it down, and I can't think of anything else. Like, okay, well, my gosh, that now. You know, file a book with great openings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't and know. And go nowhere. <laughs> that go nowhere. The stories that go nowhere. The great yeah. parent story. See, now we're getting it. See, that's pointless. A book, a book of short stories, <laughs> Pointless by Greg Heron. <laughs> it's perfect for your bathroom and mine. Great bathroom reading, right? I can see it now. I like this. I'm getting, yeah. We'll put a few pictures in there, too, and you've got, you got it made. Yeah. You'll, you'll be winning the Lambda. Oh, I already have. He already has. <laughs> yeah, but you're going to be winning it again and many times. Well, Twice. you guys, both you guys, think about this. Does it affect your your writing, or does it affect you at all that when you win an award like that? Like when you're sitting there, okay, you've got it, and now you're going to do a follow-up or you're going to do a book now. Do you, do you think about it? Do you think, oh, my God, they're going to, you um, know, because it's, there's an expectation all of a sudden. Like, for instance, like John, now all of a sudden you, you've won it now. Isn't there kind of an expectation that, oh, he's, he's a great writer. Like, you know, he's won this. And it's like, isn't there an expectation or a feeling of pressure? Yes, John, is there? um i don't really i i you know i think you feel what do you i mean i i I feel proud that i've accomplished it but i don't know i think i always put pressure on myself so i don't think it's really changed like i don't i kind of want the next thing to be better than the last thing um i'm not sure that's always going to happen but that's what i hope so I don't know if winning an award really changes that. I mean, Greg, what was your 
how, how did it sort of impact you? Well, <laughs> it, well, uh, when I won the first one, <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! <laughs> Will you sign my chest? <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist that. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> but, but literally, the first when I did win the first time, um, it, the funniest part about it—it it was a very lovely. It's a very lovely moment. It, it's very nice. But the first time, the first Lambda Award I won, I won with my partner. We had co-edited a nonfiction anthology that won the Lambda for best anthology. And so it was nice because we were both there. He wouldn't go up on stage. He made me accept it. I was drunk. He wasn't pretty. (laughs) But, but, but the, but the funny part about the best part about it, one of the best part about it in my, my favorite part about this story, I'm sorry, I could not get those words out, is that when we got back, after it was all over, after the evening was over, and we you know, had more drinks with people and celebrated a little bit, we went back to the hotel, and I sat it down on the desk in our hotel room. And I said, well, I guess I can say I want to land it now. And Paul said, and it's all downhill from here. <laughs> it's like... Thanks, honey. Love you too. Um, I won again the next year. Thank you very much. But not since. But for me, it's not the end game. And I don't use, I try not to think in terms of winning awards or anything. I don't, I don't think in those terms when I write. It's like, oh, this one's going to get me. You know, I just am trying to write a better book than the last one that I wrote. And like John said, I don't ever want to ever feel like my best work is still not ahead of me. Right. I think it. I think winning an award is nice, but it's a nice pat on the back from your from your colleagues or from your fans or who, however whoever decides who wins the various awards. They're all different. It's lovely to win. It's lovely to be nominated. It's very, very lovely to be nominated, but it's not what I think about when I write. I don't finish a book and oh, this one's going to win the Lammy or this one's going to win me an Edgar. I don't think like that, and I don't ever want to think like that. And you can't really because then you get into the mindset of okay, well, I want to. I won this award two books ago, but my books since then have not won awards or been nominated for awards. Do I not? write good books anymore i don't there's so much there's so much well he used to be good when he wrote (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly well you know well this book's okay but you know the one that was really good was two books ago it's not (laughs) well it's okay it's not the savage kind by any means but it's okay (laughs) you know that you don't want to get into yeah there's when you're a writer and i at least for me and i know other writers talk about it and i don't know if john has this experience also but there's so many it's so imposter syndrome is so real for me that i always think that whatever i'm doing is going to be terrible or people are going to hate it and it's like no and it's a constant struggle with that negativity inside of my head to get 
cast it to write something that I really awards would just make that even worse. If I added awards into that mix, it's, it's already a pretty dark place. I don't want to ever put myself on that position again. Cause realistically I can joke about this, but I've been nominated for the Lambda 15 times. I've won twice. So that means I've lost 13 times. So, so you're really a loser. So I'm really actually, I'm, I'm the Meryl Streep of gay crime. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, you've got, you got to sleep with more of the people that are voting. <laughs> I've tried that. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And... <laughs> oh, <what's that? laughs> I, w- I actually had joked. I had actually thought that a long time ago, the, that if I had lost, like I'd been nominated for the Lambda several times and I lost, and it it didn't really bother me. It doesn't bother me to lose. It's it really is nice to be nominated. It, it's winning's better than losing, but it is really thrilling to be out of all the books you know that are published in a year to be one of the five. You know that's yeah. that really is lovely. And, but I used to joke that in the years when I was losing all the time that, well, if I ever win, I might say, well, I finally figured out who to sleep with to win this thing. Thank you, Catherine Forrest. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know that Catherine would have been too amused, (laughs) but I I would have thought it was funny. But needless to say, I did not say that. (laughs) I don't think. You should be writing under the name Susan Lucci. People used to say that. People used to say that. Yeah. Uh, there, there was another lesbian, a great, there's a great lesbian writer named Sarah Shulman who's been nominated, I think, has been nominated like 12 times and she never had won and she finally won this year. And she would always call her, before I had won the first time, she used to say that we were the Susan Lucci's of the Lammies, and then I won, and then I couldn't. She couldn't say that to me anymore. But she, she kept saying it. She kept saying She's that like, she was don't talk to me. But you know, it, it was very. I was very happy that she did finally win. But she, I don't. She's an amazing writer. She's going to be. She's going to be taught in universities for years, long after we're all in the graves. And will it, does it really matter that she won a Lambda award or not? You know, she's going to, her legacy is going to live on. I mean, the book that, the book that she did last year, the oral history of ACT UP that won the Lambda. I mean, she documented the entire history of ACT UP in New York. (laughs) I mean, that book's never going to go away. That's never going to not be a vital resource for future generations. So yeah, she, I'll be, I'll be long forgotten. She'll go on. And well, I don't know if, if Trump gets in again, you never know. <laughs> well, well that's, that's a whole other. That's, that's a whole, a whole other. That's, that's a whole other bunch <laughs> of issues there. But speaking of issues, how do you how do you come up with your characters personally? Um, they always start out as some version of myself. In some ways, the, the main character certainly is. I have to be able to identify with the main character, so I have to put myself into that mindset when I'm writing about them. Um, I try. I always. I have two series. I used to write two series, and I used to always say that Scotty was the fun side of my personality, and Chance was the rest, <laughs> yeah. the the unpleasant side. But 
I always, it's like, well, who would I be? Who is this person? And that's where I want to, that's generally where I started out with, like, I'll use Scotty as an example. So I'm drawing this character out of my own, my own mind and out of who I am as a person, my own experience. It's like, okay, well, he's this happy-go-lucky person who has absolutely no sexual hang-ups. He's out, he's proud, his family loves him. He has no issues with his family. Everything is great. He just enjoys having sex. If he finds somebody to fall in love with, great. If not, fine. He's just a very happy-go-lucky, good person. And I say, like, okay, well, who would I, if that was who, if what kind of backstory would I have to have to make me that person? And so I started creating back. So I start creating backwards that way. Okay, well, who would his parents be to raise this person so emancipated and so at peace with their sexuality in, in the 1980s, the 1990s? Well, who would his parents be? What kind of background would he have? What were his experiences? Where would he have gone to high school? What would he have been like in high school? What would he have done in high school? Who would he? Who so, would he have done in high school? Who would he? Well. We know who he would have done in high school because he <laughs> talks about that in one of his books, but which I've always wanted to go back and revisit, and I never have. And now I think I might. Oh, I'm writing a new one now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a cover. Oh, you're oh. Writing one. Got, yeah, I got it's uh, the next Scotty book will come out next year sometime. And the reason <laughs> Scotty books. I always intended the Scotty books to be annual, to have one come out every year, and life just hasn't worked out that way. And then I had just literally, uh, Facebook is wonderful for reminding you of how much time has passed in your <laughs> life and how much old you're, how old you're getting. Because I was the first, this morning when I signed in, opened up my Facebook page, my Facebook page, Facebook. Three years ago, here's your memory from three years ago today. And it's like I was proofreading the last Scotty book that came out. And it's like, okay, well, I was proofreading this book three years ago. That means it came out probably no more than six months after. Within, within five months of me reading the proof, proofing them, the pages. So that means that book came out over three years ago, probably came out over three years ago. And it'll, by the time the new one comes out, four years will have passed between the books. And I never intended to go that long between them, but a lot happened. <laughs> a lot has happened since that book came out in the fall of 2018. What do you hope people take away from your books? Like when they pick up one of your books and read, read them, is there anything other than entertainment? Do you have sort of a subtext or some sort of a, a point that you're trying to make in a story? Uh, I'm always trying to make a point. <laughs> There's always a point. Whether people catch the point or not, I don't, I can't say. I don't know, but there's always a point. It's really funny because there was one time where somebody, oh gosh, it's, this will happen to you too, John. You'll be absolutely amazed. You'll find somebody has written a paper on you. <laughs> on one of your books and has found all this stuff in your book that you had no idea was there and that you didn't plan to put there and you don't know how it got there in the first place and how did I not see that any of this stuff it really freaked me out I can't remember which book it was and it's like but it was one it wasn't a Scotty book it was a chance book and somebody had written like an 80 page paper for a college class wow wow and just on the one book on the one book, part, it, it, I mean, 
it was a grad, it was for a graduate class. And I can, I, I don't remember. It was a, it was, it's been a while. It's been a hot minute. And, but it really, really freaked me out because it's like, wow, I never knew any of this stuff was in my book, which just goes to show people will find stuff in your book that you didn't mean to put there. And they will, sometimes they won't find the stuff that you meant to put there. I always try to, I want people, I think if the most important thing I think I want people to take away from any of my books is I want people to read my books and think that, you know, it's normal to be gay in this country, that it's not an alien concept that at the very, the very base thing that I want people to take away from my book is that gay people are human, just like everyone else. And anything else is just gravy for me. I, I do occasionally get, I used to, I don't anymore, but I used to get a lot of, e- I used to get emails from people who had read my books, like as teenagers. And, what, and that they, I don't know how they found them, but they'd found my books somehow and that they'd meant something to them. They'd felt less alone, which is very, very touching. And it's, it's an incredible, and if you think about that sort of thing, it can be an incredible, overwhelming response of, sense of responsibility you have to your readers. And that can be, that can be crushing as well. That I can't let these people down mentality, so I try not to think about that sort of thing. Um, Bury Me in Shadows was my last two books. Bury Me in Shadows, the whole point, there was a point to that book, and that was to show how societal and cultural homophobia and racism in in the general structure can cause generational damage. That was the whole point of that book. She Deserved It was about how dealing with what it's like to deal with toxic masculinity in a small town in which that has a very successful football team. So that's all that matters to anybody is to protect the football team at all costs and how that damages everyone else. Well, I she guess, deserved it. And she deserved it. Yeah. Um, that's that one that one those two books were very both felt very personal a lot more personal than a lot of than many of the books i've written i felt very those both felt very personal to me i'm from the south so the whole homophobia racism cultural structure (laughs) damage in the south resonated with me and i just got very outraged about all these girls who were getting drugged and fed alcohol and then sexually assaulted and having it be filmed and photographed and the girls got blamed. I got very, very tired of that. And I got very angry about that. And that was when I, and usually when I get really angry about a social issue, I end up writing about it. And that's what became, she deserved it because that was one of the things that's, struck me the most about the most famous cases, the ones that really pushed me over the edge were Steubenville and Marysville, those cases. And in both instances, that was a trending, that was one of the hashtags that they used. Hashtag she deserved it. That's what you get for being a skank. 
Wow. Um, yeah. So someone's never heard of you before, which is very hard for me to believe. You've been nominated so many times. That, <laughs> um, what one book would you say they would be best to read to kind of get the feel of what kind of writing Greg does? Well, um, it depends, really, because at this point, I'm pretty far in. And like the series books, there's seven books in the Chance series. I'm writing the ninth Scotty book now. Um, I would say in all of my other books that are standalones that aren't tied to a series are very, very different. They're very, very different from each other. And I do, I, and I do that deliberately. I try to use different voices and different styles of writing and different structures to challenge myself. But Bury Me in Shadows, or She Deserved It, is a good place to start. I would probably lean more towards Bury Me in Shadows because it's not as, probably not as triggering for people as She Deserved It will be. I didn't think about it. I, it never entered my mind when I was writing She Deserved It that it could have an effect on people, re- mm. making them relive things that they've experienced. That had never crossed my mind. And when I, it didn't cross my mind until I found out that I was getting a content warning, that they were putting a content warning. My publisher was putting a content warning on my book. And that was the first time it had happened. And it just had never crossed my mind. And then by that point, it was kind of late in the process. And the book was already finished. The proofs were already done. The cover design was done. The book is at the press. We're getting a content warning. And that made me question whether I should have written the book at all. Hmm. Simply I don't want to have that effect on people. I don't want to make people feel bad or relive bad memories. If if reading the book can help them work through it, that's a great thing. But if it's just going to make them re- relive a, a traumatic experience, I don't want that. Well, it seems like, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how the content warning works, but I mean, essentially you're saying, hey, watch out, you know, this may not be something you want to read. But I think for a lot of people, we, this story is important to be told. If we're if we're not going to talk about it, then it becomes a problem in another sense, right? Yeah, I mean, I I see that that was why I wrote it in the first place. Right. Part of the part of the reason I was so ang- part part of the part of the anger that drove me to write the book in the first place was I'd been watching this. How dare you! My entire life, I was a high school kid. I saw how girls got treated. I was in a fraternity in college. I saw how we treat, how the boy, the brothers treated the girls. I've heard the locker room talk all of my life. I've heard all of I, and it's like, and I felt like it was really for me. I felt that me writing it, having a guy write it instead of it being a, and I don't mean to demean women writers by this at all but women write about sexual assaults all the time it you know it's something they've experienced it's something they live in fear of it's something that they they know people who it's happened to if it hasn't happened to them it's much more prevalent than any of us the males realize and i thought that well maybe if a man writes a book about this people will see, oh, yeah. 
I, I, I'm, I'm expressing this badly, but well, then it's I, sort of the idea that you're going to talk about it. It doesn't have to be just something that women talk about. It's a, right, right. It's an issue. It's an issue for everyone. And that was the point that I was trying, that was the ultimate point I was trying to make in the book was that by treating girl, women, by prioritizing a small group of young men in this town and then in this high school has created this incredibly toxic environment where women, girls' lives are valueless. And it also, and the guys who are not a part of that group also suffer. Because those are the guys who are usually the ones who treat everybody like garbage. They're the entitled ones. They're the privileged ones. Everything revolves around them. And they're the ones who are going to treat other, like kids who don't belong badly. They're the ones who are going to be putting the, the nerdy kids in the lockers and doing all of the pantsing kids and doing, they're the ones, and thing is just hysterically funny, not realizing how much what's funny to them is traumatizing to the person that who's the victim because they don't ever see, they don't ever concern themselves about that because they're the golden boys. Everything is supposed to be there for their entertainment and that everyone suffers in that environment, including them because they don't learn consequence or accountability. And they're the ones who grow up to become sexual harassers and sexual assault people who rape girls in college and do all of this stuff. And it really comes and yeah. I really am glad I'm not in high school anymore. I would never go back to high school. <laughs> never. They grow up to be the savage kind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Available at all fine all Get yours at Walmart today. Um, <laughs> well, so how do people find you? Like where do what do you like to do? Uh social media? Do you like to do you have website? Where where do people find Greg? Gutters usually. Uh, <laughs> Grinders. Bars. Um, <laughs> I actually don't have a website, which is like cardinal rule, cardinal crime number one for a writer. I don't have a website. I've just never had much luck with websites. So I just finally was like, ugh, I'm tired of throwing money away. <laughs> I'm not going to. I have a blog. And that's, I write it, I try to keep it every day in which I talk about mon- incredibly mundane things. It's what I do to wake up every day. It's to get my mind working in the morning while I drink coffee before I go to the office or when I'm working at home or whatever. I write my blog. I talk about, and in it, I talk about writing. I talk about publishing. I talk about books that I've read, TV shows that I'm enjoying, things that are going on in the country, culture. So if you want to get an idea of how incredibly insane I am, my blog is a really good place to start. Um, it's gregwritesblog.com. And I'm on, you can find me on Twitter at Scotty Nola. And I think on Instagram, it's gregh121. And it's just Greg Heron on Facebook. You can just do a search for Greg Heron on Facebook. I have an author page that I ignore. Right. Because I'm, I'm so terrible at that. I'm really, really bad at my job. And I also have a regular Facebook. But I usually just use my regular Facebook. 
that's where I usually, my blog gets posted and book events get posted to my author page. But when well, I remember. We'll have everything <laughs> up on our page so that people can find you with one click and all that. So it's good. It's good. Awesome. Well, well, we appreciate you being here. We've had, we've had the uh, award winning Greg. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It was very kind. Thanks, Greg. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Something with media. I'll be back. You're listening to KCAA, your good neighbor along the way. If you plan to run for any public office or if you're an elected official with a tough campaign ahead, you definitely need a radio show on KCAA to build your brand and attract voters. Think about it. You can broadcast and podcast a weekly show on KCAA for $150 a week for an entire year, production included, and spend less than the cost of a fancy mailbox stuffer that voters throw in the trash. Your one-hour radio program will be carried on three frequencies every week in the Inland Empire, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM. So if you plan to run for any public office, call us at 281-599-9800, and our CEO will personally help you. Get started today on KCAA, the stations that leave no listeners behind. Call 281-599-9800 for details. I'm Rick Smith, host of The Rick Smith Show, inviting you to listen to my show during the noon hour every weekday right here on KCAA. My show is sponsored locally by Teamsters 1932, a strong union with 14,000 members in the IE. Our message is clear. Unions improve the lives of working people. You have a right to form and join a union. So go to Teamsters1932.org and get started now. You're on board KCAA's Inland Talk Express. KCAA, Loma Linda, 1050 AM, the station that leaves no listener behind. If you find yourself in need of legal representation, it can be a very stressful time in your life. In my career, I have dealt with thousands